This is Doc. Welcome to Buy Talk. Echo of the Hawk. Part 8. Conclusion. Hang on. Doa, uh, welcome to the Party Nation uh, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Uh, presentation and Q&A by Walter Echohawk. On behalf of the Cultural Resource Division staff, Herb Anson, Martha Onia, Chief, and myself, we thank you all for uh, for joining us today. Uh, we have a sign-in sheet over here to my left. If you haven't signed in, please sign in. Um, we'd appreciate it. Uh, and, and you're welcome to some subway snacks and other refreshments that we have in here. Uh, feel free to help yourselves. Uh, but before we continue, uh, let us have a word of prayer. Um, Uncle Morgan, would you please say a prayer for us? Okay. Tools we'd be able to use it to get a bit from it. So I ask that you would bless our peoples here at Fort Van, Sister Howard, Sister Alexis, Kelly, Phoebe, all of our relatives here, our elders, and Sunita Sayer, all of our folks, relatives here that are in need of some type of a healing, some type of blessing here today. Bless our veterans for us. Bless our peoples here that are in need of a, a, you in their life here, drugs, alcohol, drugs, and uh, <clears throat> different types and kinds of ways that you would uh, heal your bodies. So you would bless our peoples where you find them, how you find them today. And we just uh, thank you for this uh, life that you give us and ask that your continued guidance continue to be in your lives here. So I ask that you would fulfill this prayer for me for us. tribal citizen, I've read much about our history and culture in order to better understand where we come from. And as the Pawnee Nation Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, this study is a must. So I can properly use NAGPRA or Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act to uh, identify human remains, cultural items, and funerary objects. In this research, I've noticed that many of our stories are about individuals who did good deeds that benefited, <coughs> benefited the entire tribe. We have had many great warriors in our tribe, and uh, I, I believe that Walter Echohawk is one of them. He's living proof that one man, a Pawnee man, can make a difference. Uh, so please welcome Mr. Walter Echohawk. I ever had. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, Noah, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, very glad to be here, 
And uh, John Michael, I appreciate the introduction. And I want to thank uh, John Michael for the invitation to come here today to uh, talk about the NAGPRA statute, um, a lecture, I guess you could say. And uh, I appreciate that opportunity to come here on that particular subject. And I also thank uh, Herb uh, Edson, you know, who is the director of the Cultural Resource Division, a uh, brand new uh, uh, important uh, division in our tribe, you know, a tribal government that is going to help our, with our language and our culture. And, and uh, uh, just very, very excited and very optimistic, you know, that, uh, that all of our cultural doings have been placed, you know, under his. Uh, leadership in this division of the tribal government. <clears throat> and so uh, I thank you, Herb, uh, for uh, uh, putting this on, along with John Michael as well. And of course, each and every one of you, you know, I thank you for being here. Thank you, uh, brother, for those good uh, prayer, that good prayer this morning as well. <clears throat> and uh, I myself am, uh, as I say, uh, glad to be here. Uh, this is a very, a very good week, you know, for our tribe, you know, because our Wichita relatives are here, and I hope that uh, everyone can take time out and go down to the campground for hand games and uh, during our visitation this week. <coughs> um, <coughs> but anyway, uh, I have this uh, hour set aside, uh, and. Uh, Nephew uh, wanted me to uh, come and uh, give a, a, a lecture on the, the NAGPRA statute. Uh, the Native American Graves and, uh, and Repa uh, Protection and Repatriation Act uh, was passed by Congress in the year 1990. And uh, this is a Native American human rights law that was passed by Congress, a very landmark uh, law. There's not very many uh, human right uh, statutes that pertain to Indians. And if you look at all of the uh, legal cases, the court cases that uh, define Native American rights, none of them ever talk about human rights. Uh, in fact, they always say we can't look to abstract notions of justice when defining Native American rights. We can't get involved in any uh, uh, debates over morality, so they expressly eschew uh, justice when defining Native American rights. Same way in all of the statutes pertaining to Indians, and there's thousands of them, there's very few human rights statutes, and this NAGPRA law that I want to talk about is one of them. <clears throat> and. Uh, as this came about in 1990, the Pawnee Nation was one of the leading tribes that was involved in making that law, uh, lobbying for the passage of that act over a four-year period from 1986 to 1990. And then over the next five or six years, the Pawnee Nation uh, was one on the cutting edge of implementing that national law. And I know because I was the attorney for the Pawnee Nation at that time. Um, and now, today, 26 years later, after this law was passed, I want to tell you about that 
historic struggle that the Pawnee Nation was in um, that took place and why it took place over a generation ago. And for me, as a uh, young attorney at that time, it was a very uh, personal journey for, for, for me. Um, but I was not the only one on that journey for the whole Pawnee Nation went along uh, on that uh, long struggle that the tribe embarked upon back then. Um, and I want to share uh, that story with you today, what I learned along the way as well about that area of, of law and social policy that was addressed by the NAGPRA statute. And it began uh, for me in the year 1986. Uh, one day I was sitting in my office at Native American Rights Fund in Boulder, Colorado, uh, and I received a telephone call. And the call was from Dan Wildcat uh, from, from Haskell, Haskell University. And uh, of course everyone here knows about the Native American Rights Fund. But for those of you that don't, uh, NARF as it's called, or the Native American Rights Fund, uh, John Echohawk is the executive director of that organization and has been pretty much since its inception in 1970. But it is uh, uh, our nation's uh, public interest law firm for Native Americans. And I had been working there for 13 years when I received that call from uh, Dan Wildcat. Uh, and back, back then I had, uh, uh, my first 13 years at NARF, you know, was I was deeply involved in litigation against uh, prisons and jails. This side of the Mississippi, we probably sued uh, almost every state prison and many of the federal prisons and a lot of the county jails to protect the rights of Indian inmates. And in the year 1986, I had just finished uh, wrapping up a uh, five-year court battle uh, for the water rights of the uh, Muckleshoot Indian tribe up in Washington State to protect their treaty fishing rights. <coughs> and just fresh from a uh, victory in Montana, uh, protecting a sacred, sacred site uh, uh, Kootenai Falls, which is located in the Kootenai River. It's a big waterfall. Vision questing site for the Kootenai tribes. There's seven bands of Kootenais, one on the Flathead Reservation, a Kootenai tribe of Idaho, and then the uh, several bands in British Columbia. Uh, but we had just won that uh, uh, battle. Of, that, that also was about a four-year uh, uh, legal battle before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission um, but then, and, and I also, back then, I had long, long black hair. I was sporting the uh, Jack Nicholson look. It was all slicked back, you know, <laughs> pretty cool for the 80s, I guess. But um, I get this call from Dan Wildcat at that time, and he said, uh, he's a professor at, at, uh, at Haskell uh, University there, Indian College, and he said, uh, I want you to come to Haskell. We're having a seminar on the Salina Indian burial pit, which was a uh, farm 
located at, in Salina, Kansas, on I-70, just outside of uh, Salina, in which a farmer had uh, 160 uh, Indians, dead Indians, on public display. He had, uh, they had uh, dug up an entire uh, Indian burial ground, left the skeletons in place, and just uh, painted them over with uh, shellac to preserve them. Uh, and then he built kind of like a barn on top, and he was charging uh, school kids and the public, you know, 50 cents a person to come in and look at these dead Indians. So uh, Dan said, uh, we're having a seminar on this. Uh, some of our Indian students went over, went, happened to go by there. They seen the big billboard on the highway and went in, and they were very shocked at what they saw. And so we're, we're hosting a... Uh, seminar to uh, look at the different aspects of that issue. Is this right? Is it just? How did it come to be? Uh, what is the uh, state of Kansas think about this? And so, so I did uh, um, a, uh, some quick legal research and jumped on, a, on an airplane. Back then I kind of sported a bow tie and uh, went to uh, Lawrence, Kansas. And when I arrived, uh, Chip Eves from, uh, was there from the Pawnee tribe here, went up there to represent the Pawnee tribe. Uh, there was a Rickeraw man there, an elder named uh, Wesley uh, Plenty Chiefs from uh, White Shield, North Dakota, and uh, a few other people. There was the uh, Kansas State archaeologist, a guy named uh, Thomas Whitty, and others that uh, participated in that. But to my surprise, I learned after I got there that these 160 were my own relatives. They were either, they were about 600-year-old uh, Indians, men, women, and children in this little burial area <clears throat> that were related either to the Pawnees or the Wichita relations or the Arikaras, for we were the only ones in that part of the world at that time. So that began for me, as a young attorney, a four-year journey um, that uh, ultimately led to the passage of the NAGPRA statute in 1990. And today I'd like to just uh, tell you what happened, to uh, share with you uh, what I learned along the way. And I'd like to cover four areas with you, um, time permitting, and then Maybe we could have some questions and answers at the end. But first, I want to talk about the uh, background and the need for NAGPRA. That is a national human rights statute that protects our Indian graves and dead people. Secondly, I'd like to uh, talk about uh, some Pawnee uh, case studies. Uh, that, that we were all involved in uh, during that four-year period that illustrated the need for a national law of that nature. And thirdly, I'd like to uh, look at the contents of the NAGPRA statute itself. And then finally, I'd like to identify some challenges that I think lie ahead for the Pawnee Nation continuing to implement this NAGPRA statute in the years ahead. 
John, uh, and John Michael, I believe, is our point person on that, our NAGPRA officer, as I understand. So um, I'm going to put a lot of work on your shoulders. <laughs> um, so let me turn, let me just turn to my first uh, task here to basically give you an overview and a historical uh, look-see about, about the need for a national law of this nature. And uh, at the outset, I have to say that NAGPRA, in uh, looking at um, uh, trying to protect Indian graves and burial places and dead bodies and uh, to repatriate some of these uh, human remains that have already been removed, addresses some very uh, uh, big uh, universal issues. Um, because all over the world, mankind in every age, every culture, every place, has always buried the dead with religion, reverence, and respect. It's a universal sentiment that we share for the dead and the sanctity of the dead and the sensibilities of the living. It's a universal because you can look at the laws of every nation around the world and see that uh, um, every nation has a whole set of very comprehensive laws on the books uh, that protect the sanctity of the dead, places of burial, as well as the sensibilities of the living next of kin, um, and quickly see that the way that a nation uh, protects its dead and these sensibilities is really the mark of, of that nation. You know, it's, it, of its uh, sensibilities that it does have. And in the United States, that's certainly very true because the normal treatment of a dead body uh, under American uh, common law, and the common law is the law that we inherited from England and sort of shaped to meet the American setting by judges, it's judge-made law. But the normal treatment of a dead body in the common law is repose. Let, let the dead rest in peace. Uh, and there's no system of law in our nation, in all of the 50 states, uh, that allows anyone to just go out and dig up a dead body. Uh, exhumation, I guess you would say except for very, very strict and weighty reasons. And then, and only then, under court supervision, and they always have to rebury these remains afterwards, because we don't want dead people laying around on the street corners. Um, so this universal notion of letting the dead rest in peace is the norm in our country. The laws in all 50 states uh, prohibit um, um, grave desecration. You can't go in and deface a grave or knock over tombstones or tear pictures off of them or what have you. You can't desecrate a dead body 
whether it's over at Poteets or anywhere else. Uh, you can't uh, traffic, buy and sell uh, body parts. Uh, and that's true in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. But as we'll see, uh, historically in our country there was a double standard uh, when it came to the dead of the native people. Because uh, on the one hand, the law strictly protected the sanctity of the dead for white people, but virtually encouraged digging up Indians putting them into museums. Um, and so uh, this uh, double standard, it was, a, it was a classic case of uh, disparate racial treatment under the laws. There was a loophole where Indian graves and the sensibilities of the living Indians were simply not respected or protected to the in the same way that the dead of every other race was in our country. So that gave rise to a massive loophole in the law and social policy uh, where um, uh, the legal system was simply not accountable to the needs of our tribal people. Um, and it led to this loophole in the law led to uh, digging up Indian graves all over the country over the decades uh, to where each and every Native American community uh, throughout Indian country had been ravaged by uh, grave robbers, grave desecration, looting the graves, carting off the uh, dead bodies and putting them in museums and universities. And this, uh, this uh, was a very long history of this double standard, beginning uh, when the very first pilgrims uh, set foot on Plymouth Rock in the year 1620. The, uh, the uh, 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 accounts of the very first pilgrims who began coming ashore uh, went into the uh, vacant uh, Indian uh, villages and started digging up the graves, you know, to get food out of them or whatever they were doing and, and carrying them back to the Mayflower. So that, I think, placed our country on a separate track, I guess you could say, when it came to Indian burials. And these, this uh, kind of formalized uh, before the uh, Civil War in the uh, 1820s, 30s, uh, by, uh, by early notions of scientific racism. Some of the, uh, like Dr. Samuel Morton, who was the sort of the father of American physical uh, anthropology, um, began uh, collecting Indian skulls. And his goal was to measure the skulls and the shape and the size of the Indian skulls, black skulls, white skulls, in order to rank the races according to some kind of scale. He was trying to prove, he was trying to justify slavery by, by proving, and he kind of came out with, with uh, scientific proof that uh, white people were the most superior race on the planet that um, 
uh, Indians were kind of like wild animals. They were barbaric people, savages that could not live side by side with white people. And that slaves, he weren't sure that, that black people were even part of the human race. And he put them way down there um, along with beasts and that sort of thing. He was trying to justify slavery, which was the law of the land at that time. And by golly, by measuring these skulls, he was able to rank the races in some kind of a hierarchy uh, and plant the uh, imprimatur of science on that. Uh, to justify everything and make it all right, you know, at that time. Um, but anyway, uh, people like Dr. Samuel Morton and a guy named Caldwell, and they were leading mainstream scientists of the day, uh, began paying people to go out in, in Indian country to uh, rob the um, skulls, I guess, from the uh, tribal cemeteries. <clears throat> to support their uh, scientific studies of the, of the day. And they were seized upon by the politicians of the day to justify things like the removal of the Indians in the 1820s and 30s, uh, notions of the vanishing red man and all this kinds of, of stuff that sort of justified the uh, federal policies of the day in the, in the 1800s. Then, historically, uh, the U.S. Army Surgeon General uh, got into the act uh, in the year 1868 at the zenith of the Indian Wars. Um, he promulgated an order that directed Army uh, personnel to, uh, to uh, secure as many uh, Indian crania as possible from the battlefields and Indian burial grounds. Or, or, even uh, POWs that died, you know, that had never been buried, they were to be decapitated, like up at Sand Creek, you know, where a lot of the uh, Cheyenne uh, were decapitated and their skulls taken to uh, the U.S. Army Medical Museum to continue this, these kinds of studies, scientific studies. Uh, and a lot of the uh, reports that were provided by the Army personnel out in the field were very, very uh, grisly uh, tales of, uh, you know, creeping in and the midnight hour, you know, right under the nose of the Indians and robbing the graves, you know, and they would, they would write up, you know, what they did at per great personal risk, you know, to do that. And uh, so, uh, that continued this double standard uh, by the government at that point. Uh, and then along the way, uh, between the years 1883 all the way to 1924, um, uh, uh, train loads and train loads of cultural uh, patrimony left Indian country uh, through the museum uh, collecting crews and uh, anthropologists um, uh, went out to tribal communities. They felt the Indians were vanishing and they wanted to collect all of their material items that they could. Anything made by an Indian was fair game. So our sacred uh, medicine bundles, uh, art, artifacts, uh, 
patrimony of all kinds, even battlefield pickups, uh, booty from the battlefields uh, uh, were collected by the train loads so that for some tribes um, around the country, if not most of them, most of their materials were in the, in the Eastern museums had more than the tribes themselves did. They were picked clean, just like a Safeway turkey, you know. Um, and um, so around the turn of the century then, the U.S. Congress uh, passed a law that contributed to this double standard here by passing the Antiquities Act of, of, of 1906 which basically said that all uh, Indian dead bodies located in graves on federal land became the property of the United States government and could be dug up with a federal permit so long as they're permanently curated in a museum or a university. And uh, the Antiquities Act, which is still on the books, um, is at odds with uh, the common law, American common law. Because the common law says that a dead body is not property. You can't buy and sell a, a dead person. Uh, you can't go out and, and uh, go down to petites and collect some corpses and, and, and buy and sell them in the stock market, for example. Uh, but so, so the Congress radically changed that rule and said that for the first time then, Indi dead Indians are federal property. They belong to the federal government and they can be disposed of as, as the government wishes. Um, so uh, that, that's sort of a historical thing that I walk through. It's not easy to talk about because it's a very, very uh, grisly, uh, long, grisly uh, tale uh, that's really hard to stomach, you know, when you read about uh, what took place. So, um, uh, even into the uh, modern era of federal Indian law, which I would say began in about 1970 when President Nixon passed the, uh, the uh, uh, created the uh, Indian uh, Self-Determination Policy and announced it to Congress in 1970. That kind of kicked off the uh, modern era of uh, federal Indian law. Uh, even into that era, American state courts were still handing down these decisions uh, that had these really odd rulings when Indians are concerned, you know, like California, there was a case called uh, one of the bear be such uh, be, uh, such and such construction company where they were building a housing project in 1982 in California. And uh, the construction company dug up, gosh, about 200 Indian graves from a known Indian cemetery. And one of the descendants went to state court and, and said, you can't do that. There's a statute on the books that protects uh, cemeteries from this kind of behavior. The court said, well, it's not really applicable to this Indian cemetery because you guys uh, uh, haven't buried anyone there. there were, you had to, if you don't 
bury anyone for a six-year period, the statute doesn't apply. You know? So they were able to go in and dig up all of these Indians. Um, and others, you know, that says the, the, the normal statutes that apply to everybody else to protect human people from desecration don't apply to skeletons or to older remains. Um, so uh, the courts were really not receptive to applying the same kinds of protections to Indian graves and, and dead Indians as the law provided for everybody else. And we saw some very uh, shocking things then take place in Hawaii, uh, all over the country, you know, where they were maybe building hotels and digging up skulls or people renting out their land, you know, for pot hunters to come in and dig, dig for artifacts and dead bodies, uh, digging up um, graves in Louisiana, you know, to haul off the uh, items that were placed interred with the graves, these quote-unquote burial goods that were sold. Uh, very, very shocking um, things that were reported in the press, you know, about pot hunting and selling and buying and trading uh, dead, dead bodies and so on and so forth. That, that really uh, has um, shocked the conscience of the public when you actually seen it in a newspaper, you know, done in broad daylight kind of a thing. Uh, so, it was only a matter of time for the Indian nations to begin turning their attention to this long-standing problem. As they begin developing their governmental powers in the modern era of federal Indian law, exercising their sovereignty, uh, expanding their governmental uh, authorities, it was only a matter of time before the tribal governments themselves began to uh, address this, this problem. Uh, because this massive national grave robbing epidemic that was seen and recorded in the press in the mid-80s uh, had affected every tribe in the country, as I was telling, telling you earlier. Every Native American community had been Affected. And the impacts on Indian country were several. First of all, it violated their religious uh, beliefs and practices with re uh, regarding the dead. You know, once we usually bury a person, we intended to stay, stay buried. You know, and there's a lot of uh, religious uh, beliefs about the well-being of the spirit dist being disturbed. You know, when you steal a dead body. And, steal from the dead, that kind of thing. So, these rampant practices violated the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, freedom of religion, causing a lot of spirit sickness among tribal communities that had been affected by stealing their dead, desecrating their dead, in violation of tribal religious scruples. Secondly, this kind of activity also violated the tribal sovereignty of Indian tribes because one of the inherent powers of each Indian nation is the power uh, to uh, determine the relationships among tribal members. And 
the relationship between the living and the dead falls squarely within that ambit of tribal authority. And so uh, when you had outside authorities, kind of like the frackers coming into our jurisdiction, uh, in this instance it was pot hunters or, or whatever, it were uh, intruding on the tribal sovereignty, the right and the power of the tribe to regulate and protect the sensibilities of the living towards their own dead. Then treaty rights were being violated. Arguments uh, could be made that when we ceded the land to the United States government in these treaties, that no one intended to cede the dead to the U.S. government because our dead were not property. And we retained all of our rights with regard to our dead in these ceded lands. And then fourthly, uh, we had this equal protection violation, this double standard that I talked about er uh, earlier, where the laws strictly protected the sanctity of the dead and their, their graves for non-Indians, but actually promoted the theft of dead Indians. It's an equal protection violation of the law. So uh, how did this come to pass? How did this uh, legal problem and this social uh, problem come to pass over these uh, years? I think looking back, all the way back, you know, to that four-year period that I want to talk about, um, I think one part uh, that we can account for this mistreatment, I think, I see three of them, three causes, three forces at work here. The first being colonialism. And of course, colonialism is a, well, it was the 500-year worldwide phenomenon when the nations of Europe competed with one another to colonize as much of the rest of the world as possible. So over a 500-year period from 1492 to well into the 60s, and when the UN condemned colonialism into the uh, post-colonial era, this uh, worldwide phenomena of colonialism, uh, one of its characteristics is a one-way transfer of property. That's the purpose of a colony, to go to someone else's land and colonize it, to appropriate the land and the feature there is it entailed a one-way transfer of property from native hands to the hands of the colonizers. And that included real estate, it included natural resources, and in our country it included even the dead from the burials and the funerary objects that were buried with the dead. It was part of uh, this one-way transfer of property commonly found in colonies around the world. And you can look into the museums in Europe, Britain, France, Italy, and you'll see all of these uh, dead native people from these colonies and their, their skulls and their things taken from their dead as hard evidence. Uh, so I think uh, the, the uh, 
construct of colonialism that we inherited in this country was one of the forces at work. The second force at work, I think, at the time many of these things were acquired, uh, was conquest. I think part of a conquest, the conqueror looks upon the land as uh, booty, something to be raped, booty and plunder to be taken. That's an attribute of conquest all the way back from Genghis Khan, Vikings, and on the battlefields and burial grounds of our own nation, where all of the uh, things belonging to Indians were seen as plunder, battlefield uh, booty that could be taken without the consent of the owners. And that's just simply an attribute of conquest and war uh, from the very beginning of our species around the world. And certainly, we had more than 40 Indian wars in the United States that took place over a 100-year period in which our country was one vast uh, battle, battlefield. And so there's a long 100-year uh, conquest that went on here, and many of these items were acquired in, in that fashion. This included sacred objects, as well as objects of cultural patrimony, and uh, as well as things belonging to the dead. And then the third big force at work, it seems to me, is the uh, phenomena known as scientific racism. Racism takes many forms, um, and it's always been with our human family, I think, from day one. But one form that racism takes is scientific racism to prove that the Jews are biologically inferior, to use science to prove that the natural place of black people is as, as a slave because they're racially inferior. And I believe those, uh, that, that line of thought was certainly at play here with Dr. Samuel Morton and the uh, founders of American physical anthropology that were in the business of collecting Indian skulls. So these problems and these forces at play here, uh, I think, uh, reveal the dark side of uh, human nature, the dark side of uh, conquest, dark side of uh, colonialism, and it led to an Indian country movement in the 80s to, uh, to uh, law reform, to address that problem head on and to uh, close these loopholes in our legal protections. And uh, the Pawnee Nation was very active in that, in that period, 1986 to 1990, and then implementing these laws throughout the 70s down to the current day. So uh, uh, there were a number of uh, efforts that, uh, in that four-year period leading to NAGPRA, where the Pawnee Nation, as I mentioned earlier, was one of the leading tribes involved there because 
As you know, we uh, are aboriginal indigenous inhabitants of the Central Plains. And we have lots of uh, different origin stories. I favored a Skidee origin story. We were created by the stars and our Adam and Eve were touched down by Nibira, Nebraska on the banks of the Missouri River. Certainly there's no evidence of our people living on either side of the Central Plains. Um, when we were removed from that homeland, we left our dead behind. And um, I guess assumed that they would be okay, but that was not the case because of this double standard and social policy that I talked about earlier. But under the leadership of President Bob Chapman back then, as well as uh, uh, President uh, Lawrence Goodfox and all of our elders at that time, uh, we uh, confronted a number of cases here that I think illustrated the need for a national law. The first being this Salina Indian burial pit. Uh, I was called upon to represent uh, not only the Pawnee tribe, but also the Wichita and the Arikaras to address that problem and try to close down that Salina burial pit back in 1986. And uh, ultimately, we got two laws passed there in Kansas that did that and entered into one treaty as well. Uh, the, uh, the, the two laws that were passed prohibited, the first one prohibited all desecration of unmarked Indian graves in the state of Kansas and set in place a, uh, procedures to protect them. The second one closed down the Salina burial pit and compensated the owner for taking his property allowing us to go in and cover these remains with penitent blankets and cover over that tourist, tourist attraction. And that was done within the context of uh, a document that we negotiated, which was entitled The Treaty of Smoky Hill of February 1989. And this is a memorandum of understanding that was entered into between the landowner, the next of kin that was represented by the Pawnee Nation, the three affiliated tribes of the Berthold Reservation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes of Oklahoma, the local county, as well as the uh, Kansas State Historical Society, the state archaeologist, and the state historical preservation officer, represented by the Attorney General of Kansas. And it committed the parties to supporting these Kansas statutes, to closing down that burial pit. We've got a permanent easement to go up and visit and pay respects to that uh, so that, that uh, burial ground up there. These are 160-year-old, 160 men, women, and children um, that are either Pawnee, Wichita, or Arikara, uh, and they date from the year 900 A.D. to about 1500 A.D. 
The second effort was up in Nebraska. Apparently when we were left Nebraska, non-Indians poured into our village cemeteries up there and began digging up every grave they could possibly find. So in 1987, uh, NARF was retained uh, to uh, address that problem. And we went up there, not only myself, but uh, Robert Paraguay from NARF, some of you may remember him, um, and uh, along with our tribal delegations went up to Lincoln, Nebraska, time and time again from 1987 until we got a law passed in 1989, LB340, which was a ver the very first comprehensive state re repatriation statute passed by any state in the nation. It took that law, three attorney general opinions, uh, one uh, administrative grievance procedure, and one lawsuit to get that law passed but it was a landmark statute. And um, then in 19, under that law, in 1990, 400 Pawnees were reburied in the Genoa City Cemetery. These dead relatives uh, were from the year 1500 to 1875. One year later, we reburied 125 older remains from the Loop River area under a, a, after winning a, a statutory grievance procedure. These were buried at Massacre Canyon on Junior Schwamick's ranch at Massacre Canyon. Then in 1996, uh, the tribe reburied an additional 400 remains at the Genoa City Cemetery. This was a joint uh, statutory claim brought by the Pawnees, the Wichitas, and the Arikaras, and it led to 400 more being buried in Genoa. Down to the present day, we're still repatriating and reburying uh, remains. Uh, then in the the third area here is the uh, Smithsonian Institution back in Washington, D.C., our nation's national museum. In uh, the late 80s, it was discovered there were 10,000 dead Indians in the attic of the Smithsonian. So in 1987, uh, we re represented the uh, same three tribes again to uh, uh, go back to uh, D.C. and the uh, lobby, and uh, ultimately, two years later, uh, we got uh, a law passed of the, the repatriation provisions in the National Museum of the American Indian Act, required the museum to repatriate these uh, dead Indians to their tribes of origin. And uh, uh, following the passage of that act, uh, uh, we uh, represented the tribe in repatriating uh, some of our relatives from the Smithsonian, uh, filing the very first uh, appeal procedure in 1994-1995. Roger Echohawk provided the, uh, was our expert witness, and I should add James Wright again helped us out as well in Nebraska uh, as our historians. Uh, 
And then in 1997, uh, we, uh, the tribe uh, filed a claim for some older remains, deep Kisker remains that were originated from the Missouri area, Kansas City, Missouri area. And we won that claim as well. And there was a reburial that took place in the state of Missouri. So uh, I got five minutes left here. Uh, NAGPRA then was passed one year later in 1990. And I, I need to go back and say, uh, in this effort, it was the entire Pawnee tribe, uh, one of the most powerful uh, prayers that ever took place uh, for me, and that was conducted by our Kitkahawkee chief back here, Morgan Littleson, in the community house, where that cedar, he said, is gonna remove any barriers along the way move it aside so we can do what we have to do. And thanks to that and other prayers and medicine that was used at that time, uh, it all took place. But ultimately, this NACPRA statute was passed. The Pawnees and their attorneys participated on testimony and actually sitting down and crafting and negotiating that statute through the halls of Congress. Uh, and it was passed in the year 1990. In that law, Congress uh, made some policy cuts. It mediated uh, uh, differences between Indian tribes, the scientific community, our anthropologists, archaeologists, museums, art dealers, and laid out a national policy that basically took the repatriation provisions of the National Museum of the American Indian Act that applied to the Smithsonian and made it into a national policy that applied to all of the federal government, all of the federal agencies, all of the federal museums, and to all of the state universities and museums that received federal funding. And it created this policy that repudiated this double standard um, and uh, through this policy, and it put teeth into it as well through criminal prosecutions and civil causes of action in federal district court. Uh, it basically does four things. Uh, one, it prohibits the sale of Indian bodies and body parts. Regardless of where and when or where they were acquired, you can't sell a dead Indian anymore. Secondly, it laid out procedures to protect unmarked Indian graves located on federal and Indian land. Thirdly, it created a national repatriation process to begin repatriating these dead Indians that were in the custody of, of uh, federal and federally funded museums and agencies. It applied to human remains, funerary objects that were in the graves belonging to the dead, sacred objects like pipes and different things like that, as well as cultural patrimony like these big bundles that we once owned. And so it, it covered these items and laid out standards and a process for uh, repatriating them back to the rightful Indian owners, culturally affiliated tribes. Since that time, this 
law was passed, 32,000 uh, dead Indians have been repatriated to their folks, along with 770,000 funerary objects that were buried with these 32,000 dead people. The fourth thing that this statute did was it, it laid out a process for disposing of the culturally unidentifiable human remains. That is, the dead Indians that were in the museums that nobody knew where they came from. They didn't know what tribe they were. And there's 120,000 culturally unidentifiable remains that are in our museums and federal agencies today. So NAGPRA realized that, that uh, we had these unknown Indian dead and it authorized the Secretary of the Interior to cr create an uh, 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 administrative process for disposing of these remains through rulemaking. That was finally done in the year 2010 under 25 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 10. This rule is very favorable to Indian tribes. It, it basically requires uh, the NAGPRA Review Board to conduct inventories of all of these culturally unidentifiable dead people, and then to sit down and conduct consultations with traditional religious leaders and Indian tribes uh, from lands where these remains were acquired, whether they're tribal lands or aboriginal tribal areas, to try to work out a voluntary process for transferring these remains back to those tribes for reburial. It goes on to say that these agencies must return these remains uh, to a requesting tribe when they're unable to uh, <coughs> prove that they have a right of possession to them as defined in the statute. And it lays out a, a priority for doing that. It could, the first one would be uh, to return to those uh, tribes from who own land where these unidentifiable people were acquired. Secondly, uh, who owned the aboriginal lands, the broader areas. Uh, and if there's none there, then to any other tribe that may want them. So um, I think that the challenge ahead now for our Pawnee um, um, NAGPRA work are twofold. And these challenges, they continue. I think every tribe today in the country has a NAGPRA office. It was a deep national problem, just like the civil rights statutes that were passed back in the 60s are still being implemented today. It's the same thing with the NAGPRA statute. 26 years later, we're still implementing it across the country. For us, I think there are two big challenges here that I see, and then I close, I'm gonna close with this because I'm a minute over here, it looks like. First is our sacred bundles. These are sacred objects. They qualify for repatriation under the act as a sacred object. 
And they secondly, they qualify as cultural patrimony. Cultural patrimony be, uh, being that the item is so important, it belongs to everybody. And no one single person can ever sell it. It's just like, you can't sell the Brooklyn Bridge, or you can't sell the Liberty Bell, or you can't sell the original copy of the Declaration of Independence. It, it's so important to the history and the culture and identity of the group, no one can possibly sell it. These sacred bundles fall within that category, and they could be repatriated very easily. We know where they are, and the statute is clear, and we can bring them home. The uh, Rickeros, they still have their bundles up there, as Herb, Herb knows, he's been up there. They still, they never lost their bundles. They still have about 15 up, up there, and they, they have their bundle keepers. They have their ceremonies that go along with those bundles. They said, come up here, we'll teach you about how we handle our bundles. And I think there's some interest there. Uh, possibly some interest to rethink uh, uh, our original uh, position, I think, of the different bands and the chiefs, you know, was we're afraid of our bundles. We don't know how to uh, take care of them anymore. And so we don't, we don't want them. We're afraid they're going to hurt us or something. Um, but I'm hoping that the community can take a second look at that because uh, the, the uh, law is very clear. If we want to bring them back, you know, the Rickeros don't know how to open their bundles, and they don't know they don't know how to uh, all of the ceremonies that once with, went with them. But they know the respect of those bundles. They feed them, you know, they take care of them, and they uh, support their nation. And I think that uh, all of our aspirations as Pawnee people and our tribal government uh, efforts uh, will come to pass if we bring our bundles home. That's my own opinion. Uh, the second challenge, uh, I think, uh, for our NAGPRA office is, the, is to uh, develop a plan along with the Wichita's and the Arikara's to repatriate these culturally unidentifiable human remains from our aboriginal areas here in the Central Plains, all the way up through Wichita country, to Pawnee country, to Arikara country, to take responsibility for these unknown Indian dead found within those aboriginal lands between the three related tribes and repatriate them lay them to rest. Someone has to stand up for these dead Indians. And if these three tribes don't do it, no one else is. So I lay that out as a, a challenge. There's far more culturally unidentifiable remains out there, 120,000 of them, than the 32,000 culturally identifiable remains that have already been repatriated. So the great bulk of the work remains. And I, I, I would hope that our tribal government would be 
like other tribal governments, because the laws in other tribes, other governments, whether it's Pawnee County, City of Pawnee, Oklahoma City, District of Columbia, if you can't find the next of kin, if someone dies with, uh, without a friend to bury him, without any relatives or kin folks, or maybe a prison inmate that passes away without a family, the state's going to step up and guarantee a proper burial for that person. No one is left out from our policy of proper uh, places of burial. And regardless if they have, know who they are, regardless of uh, if they got next of kin or not, it could be a stranger from a different country, our government will then step in and ensure a proper burial. And I think it's incumbent upon our Pawnee government, Wichita government, Rikara, three affiliated tribes government, to do the same thing for these, uh, for these uh, dead Indians that uh, come from our area. You know. It's our responsibility, and if we don't, no one else will. So I lay that before you as a suggestion for uh, some challenges that lay ahead in the coming year for our NAGPRA office here to take leadership, to reach out with our relative tribes and uh, um, maybe develop a plan of action, you know, to set that in motion. So with that, I want to thank everyone that brings me to my long-winded uh, conclusion. And uh, I think I'm over time a little bit, John Michael, uh, but um, certainly open for a few questions, as long as they're easy ones. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. Steve. Takes ancient burial sites and such. Uh, does it not also protect the uh, burial sites, unmarked graves that we've had since 2016? Uh, there's been a lot of burial sites in our area in the last part of the 1890s. Are these not protected also? Low? Okay. Yes, uh, any unmarked Indian grave or any grave, unmarked or not, that's located on Pawnee land is protected by this NAGPRA statute. So if you're referring to Twin Mounds, yes, there's, there's burials up there. You walk on top of that mound and you can, up on the top of the bluff up there, you can see those indents up there. Well, you can do the same thing at the South Cemetery. Um, this has been, gosh, I don't want to take all your time up there, folks, but uh, 1998, my mother and I first approached the Pawnees about uh, Twin Mounds, South Cemetery, and other things. All we wanted at that time just to get a fence built around it. This is a uh, aerial photo up Twin Mounds. I know you guys can't see it, but there's four wheel routes running through it. The hill climb area on the mound. This person back here has got his own little special thing. 
somewhere down the road, one of our leaders gave permission to the oil company to go in and cut a pad. Tell you the truth, we really don't know where my great-grandmother was buried because in 1889, we can only imagine. How do you know that they didn't dig her up when they built that oil pad for a few dollars? Or anybody else? My mother and I uh, started sitting at the uh, South Cemetery Memorial Day in places, and we, we would see people coming to a place, walk to an area, pray. There was no marker, no nothing. We kind of took it upon our own. We marked 40 graves that there was no marks before. And it's important to me, to the people down at, the, at Twin Mountains, which I've been fighting for for now 18 years. I've been promised this was on our schedule. This, is, this will be done. Three different councils have promised this. My mother is gone now. The, uh, it's important to me as somebody in Nebraska or anything else. And we and this is we're here. We're oh, here. Okay. You, can, you can go to all of our center, Chawi, and you can see just like you say the indentations. Yeah. You know, 15 years ago we had the cause we were willing to give us or loan us their ground penetrating. And we've got a quick, we've got a quick, you know, lip service, folks. And that's all I've been getting for many, many years, lip service. Oh, we'll do this, but then we're off doing something else. You mentioned the, the, the land that Roger gave us in, in Nebraska, and I think you should mention that that, that man, was, you know, made that possible. <coughs> but this is important, and this is for our future, and this is things that... We've got to look at it. We have given money for all four cemeteries. If you didn't know, we had four cemeteries. And the money was only spent on three. You know, if we can, we can do a lot of things around here, you know, give me a fence. We've given money to the tribe before to have this fence built. Never. But I can't stand to see the four-wheel drive. Yeah. All of the Indians that live down there probably have folks up there. You know? Yeah, who knows? You know, I tried to put my place, you know, this was, a, you can tell this was an old wagon, you know, a road. And we don't actually own this, it's cut off here, we actually own here. And I, I imagine back in those days, you know, would they really carry somebody over to the top of the mountain? Would they, you know, would they make it easy from the road, you know? And that kind of thing. But, Please, uh, Herb, listen. The, uh, we recently, uh, I was a tribal attorney for the Comanches. They, uh, they had a unmarked cemetery at Fort Sill that uh, was right next to the runway of their airstrip there. And uh, that was an old Indian cemetery that was there before Fort Sill was, and when they acquired that military reservation, they acquired that cemetery along with two or three other Indian cemeteries.
but they knocked over all the tombstones on that one and took them away and uh, covered tops with uh, concrete or soil over on top of it so they could use that area as a runway. About 150 uh, graves were there, so uh, Chairman Coffey um, started negotiating with the uh, Army about that and went all the way up to the Pentagon. And um, they, uh, they ultimately uh, got a ground-penetrating radar and went in there and located every one of those graves and, and uh, took, uh, took, uh, cleaned them off, put tombstones up, and uh, re revamped it to, and a lot of them, most, about half of them had, uh, they knew who the next of kin were, you know, so um, that's what they did, you know, so things like this are, are ongoing, of ongoing concern to uh, tribal governments, you know, and so I, I hope we can do our best to uh, the same thing here. Cecil. Uh, just your opinion on, on all of these problems and things that the help you're getting from the federal government for the last, say, eight years. Has it been a favorable relationship with the federal government for the last, say, eight years as opposed to hostile? Has it been something that's some things have happened for Native people that, uh, that, that has been good. Under the Obama administration? Yeah, I think uh, he's opened some doors. He appointed the first Indian uh, federal judge and uh, different, uh, Larry Echohawk, you know, in, in the uh, interior. We've had access that we have experienced in many, many years to the government. Um, and I think things have gotten better. Right now, I think the big concern for the Pawnees is BLM and BIA and their oil and gas uh, the control they exercise over our oil and gas resource sources and the interference of those federal agencies with the wishes of the tribal government and the legitimate needs to protect our water and environment. But uh, that is uh, another, you know, know that there's been much change there, but by and large, uh, uh, things have been better uh, for tribes under the Obama administration, and things are going to go to hell in a handbasket mighty quick when, uh, if Trump gets in, I, I can see that. So uh, uh, I think Indians, along with other minorities, are on his hit list from what I can gather. And, uh, but I think, uh, you know, uh, there's been, you know, annual meet, tribal meetings at the White House uh, with, uh, under the Obama administration and just unprecedented access to the government in high places and appointments in high places. Something that our tribal leaders, our younger tribal leaders were never used to and I don't think we optimized or took, took maximum advantage of those uh, opportunities, you know, when that window was open and that door was open, our tribal leaders should have walked right on through. Um, but uh, they didn't, uh, I think a lot of them grew up in an era where there was no such opportunities with the government and they didn't know how to uh, exploit the advantages 
Um, and I think we could have gotten and should have gotten a lot more out of the Obama administration than we actually did, you know. Our tribal leaders would go to the White House and they would complain about, well, who's mowing the front yard? When there were bigger issues, they could have gone in the proactive uh, Indian country agenda, which they, they didn't pursue as uh, adroitly as uh, some of the older tribal leaders that had, had, had better access in years past. So if, uh, if we had a political uh, advisory board or to, to advise our, our business council that you have today uh, on someone who's well-versed in, in the, uh, the political uh, dealings of, of Washington, D.C., that would be a better come better results? I think so. Uh, a lot of tribes, uh, we have real important business in Washington, D.C., and uh, many tribes uh, hire lobbyists who are professional uh, uh, policy people or attorneys that know how that town operates. They know, uh, have cultivated their relationships. They know how the town works. They know how to get things done. And uh, they're in high demand. There's a small cadre of, uh, in my day, there used to be about a dozen or 15 of them that really knew how that town worked. And uh, they got hundreds of proactive uh, Indian, modern Indian legislation enacted. Uh, and today there's, there's, there, there are still uh, a cadre, I think, of very seasoned, experienced, knowledgeable, lobbying uh, experts in town, and a lot of tribes that can afford them are taking advantage of that to get their business taken care of in a speedy way in that shark-infested town. <laughs> Did we get one, that one big settlement, wasn't that during the Obama administration, or was that one before, that large, that large settlement we had? That was Obama, the, uh, was. the uh, trust fund, yes, yeah, that was Obama. Thank uh, Stephen Bird for bringing that touching subject up. I uh, encourage us all to think more about that. But uh, also, in repatriating items from museums, one of the things that I've been keenly focused on is uh, repatriating our seeds. Um, and try it out. Uh, located uh, one source, I have some others, and had John Michael write for that. And he was able to, to repatriate the seeds uh, back to the Pawnee Nation. And I, I'm hoping that we can do more of that. And what my understanding is, is that we need to sit down and develop policies once we have them. You know, the next step is how to replenish them you know, and, and to what good use will they go for. Um, so I'm real thankful for John Michael to be here and to think along those lines. And you know, gave you one batch and I'm ready to turn over some more for you to repatriate. But I want to see what those policies are being thought of. Um, 
Well, I certainly have enjoyed the day, and again, John Michael and her, thank you very much. Uh, thank each and every one of you for uh, coming. And uh, I have to just in closing, I have to say I was very proud of our elders and our uh, uh, tribal leaders that we had back in those years that I was just talking about from 1986 to, say, the mid-90s, uh, that really stepped up to the plate and met that challenge, you know, that repatriation, because back then things were much different, you know, it was, it was just considered okay, you know, to uh, take Indian dead and put them on the museum uh, showcases, you know, and that's, that's, uh, was deeply ingrained, you know, and uh, our leaders, uh, they were, uh, no longer here, you know, but they they stepped up at that time, you know, and they uh, it was new to them because we we knew how to bury our dead. We got ceremonies for that, but we didn't have any ceremonies for reburying someone that had been dug up and carried away. So this was a new one on them, you know, and they uh, uh, they all uh, thought about it, put their minds together and determined that they needed to, to, uh, to uh, repatriate them no matter what and lay them back to rest. And uh, I, I was real proud of them back, back at that time and I was very fortunate as a young, a young person to work with them on, on, that, uh, on that important matter, you know. And I just, you know, they're pretty much no longer here, I guess, you know. Um, but uh, I was proud of them at the time and uh, uh, very honored to work with them. So with that, uh, thank each and every one of you.